Good morning once again. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, we're looking at verses 14 through 21. This is our life. There's an app for that teaching series. App is short for application. It is a tool that helps you to perform a task that makes life easier or better. It's what we have on our smartphones, if you have a smartphone. The book of Ephesians is an app for life. And the way the book is laid out is how we are to live out the Christian life. I talked about this early on in this uh, series, and I haven't talked about it for a while, so this is just to bring you up to speed, uh, just to remind you of what the book is about. Chapters 1 through 3, those are the first three chapters. There's six chapters in the book of Ephesians. First three uh, talk to us about our wealth, the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 talk about our walk. Now, this is what you need to always remember as it relates to the Christian life. You don't become a better Christian by concentrating on what you must do. You become a better Christian by being captivated by what has been done for you through Jesus Christ on the cross. You reverse that and you get wrapped up into religion and you miss the big E on the I chart who is, happens to be Jesus and it gets all messed up from that point on. So the book is laid out in the way that we are to live the Christian life is that you are first and foremost captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and then he begins to transform your heart and then out of that your life becomes different. You can't help but become different as a result of that. And so we've been working our way through this book. We're in chapter 3 so we're in part of still the wealth. We'll wrap up 3 and then next weekend we'll head into chapter 4 where it starts going more into the specifics of what our walk or our responsibilities look like and we have a just an absolutely phenomenal prayer that that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus it's a prayer that I would encourage you to pray this is the second prayer that we find in this book the first prayer is found in chapter 1 and that's the prayer I'm going to pray this morning before we unpack our text and that first prayer is really a prayer for enlightenment And this prayer is really a prayer about enablement as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're talking about inner strength this morning. And so let me intro this by saying it's not what happens to you, but what happens in you that matters most in life. I know, I know, some of you probably would argue with me and say, wait, 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 you don't understand what I have gone through or what I'm currently going through. Uh, Okay, maybe I I don't, but I do understand how God has wired us up. And I think the Apostle Paul also understands that too. And that's why he's talking about inner strength. Because it's it's not the circumstances, it's not the conditioning, it's not your chromosomes that make you the way you are. Those certainly influence your life, but they don't control you. But, but what really controls you more than anything, not the events of life, but it's your evaluation of those events that determine how you think, feel, and will respond to those events. And Paul is calling this inner strength, something that we all desperately need. We need this inner strength because my biggest problem, your biggest problems aren't external. Think about this. It's not the fact that you're doing a major remodeling in your house and you got to get all those, you know, take care of all that. It's not the fact that maybe you just lost your job. It's not the fact that you're struggling in a marriage relationship. It's not the fact that your, your health is going down the tubes. It's, it's not those external things as much as it's the internal part of you and how you are choosing to look at those things, evaluate those things in light of God's Word, and it will make all the difference in the world in how you you do life, how you respond to that. That's the inner strength Paul is talking about here that he prays that we will have. If you have the internal strength of the Holy Spirit that Paul is praying for here, you can face anything. You can face absolutely anything in life. Um... I wrote a list of things that I was, as I was thinking about this inner strength that I know 
that I would like to have increased in my life. The inter inter internal strength of the Holy Spirit will fortify your faith, deepen your character, soften your compassion, solidify your convictions, increase your courage, broaden your concerns, give you joy and difficulty, wisdom beyond years, intensify your relationship with God so that it, it infuses every area of your life with vitality and makes you feel treasured and protected only as a child of God can. Any candidates for that? I, yeah. I'm in the front of the line. I want that. I need that. I long for that. I pray for that. That's part of this prayer here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let me pray the first prayer in Ephesians, and then we're going to dive into our text, which is the second prayer, and then we're going to unpack the study. We're answering the question, what is inner strength? Why is it important? And how do we get it? So, Father God, glorious Father, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that we would, we would grow in our relationship with you, this intimate, personal relationship with you, and that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us and that we would understand more clearly the riches of your glorious inheritance in us. And that we would begin to understand more clearly and enter into this immeasurably greatness, this immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe in your Son, our Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let me read it. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. It's a prayer. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Pretty powerful text. Let's unpack it. Here we go. What is this inner strength? And then we'll look at what is, why is it important? And then how do we get it? So what is this inner strength? Let me have you do this real quick. Turn to the uh, people next to you, sitting around you, and see if they know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. We're probably a little bit more conscientious of this this time of the year when we start thinking more about thermostats and thermometers and how hot is it. And so what is the difference between the two? Real quick, turn, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. So what are you coming up with? I mean, it's pretty obvious, but, but the reason why I wanted you to think about that is because every one of us tend to live our lives more either like a thermostat or a thermometer. And as it relates to the environment, the circumstances, whatever's going down in our life, I guess the question I would be asking is, that, do you tend to be proactive or reactive when it comes to the people, things, and circumstances of your life? And, and you know, I, if you're like me, you know, some situations you do real good in, and others you don't do so well in. There's just all kinds of different variables uh, that contribute to the situation and the problems and the issues of life. So are you proactive? Or are you more like a thermostat that your choices are based on your values? That would be the inner strength that Paul's talking about here. Or are you reactive? You're more like a thermometer and your choices are based on impulses. It just, it just kind of goes up and down based on, you know, I'm having a great day today. Why is it so good? Well, hey, the weather's great and this is great and that's great. And so that would be kind of more like a thermometer as opposed to the thermostat that kind of sets the tone 
based on choices you make and values. See, if your inner life is strong, then your outer life can be managed, no matter what goes down in your life. But if your inner life is weak, it doesn't matter what's going on in the outer life. You're, gonna, you're headed for a wild ride in your life. And that's that inner strength that Paul is talking about. So we need inner strength so that we can have three things. In fact, you are living with this inner strength if you have these three things. In fact, I think each of these three things under the heading of what is inner strength are related and are progressive. They build on each other. So he's saying, hey, I want you out of God's glorious riches to be, to, uh, to be strengthened by His Spirit in your inner being so that these three things can happen. Here's the first one. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Now, why would he say that you need strength so that can happen? And by the way, this is kind of crazy. I thought Jesus already was in their hearts because he's talking to Christians and he already said that Christ is in your heart. So why is he praying now that Christ would be in their heart? Isn't that interesting? It's because you can have Christ in your heart and not really, really, in the truest sense, have Christ in your heart. Kind of be living oblivious to the reality of Christ being in your heart. And so he's wanting it to go from just a concept to a reality. Because it can be intellectually coherent to you that Christ is in your heart, but it's got to move from being intellectually coherent to being existentially compelling, moving, stirring. It takes hold of your heart. As we've often said, that faith involves truth entering the head igniting the heart and outworking through the hands. It's got to involve all of that if Christ is indeed in your heart. By the way, when the Bible uses the word heart, uses it some eight, nine hundred times in the Bible, pretty important word, and it means thoughts, emotions, and your will. But it actually goes even deeper than that. It's the core of who you are. In fact, it says in 621 of Matthew, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So it's where you're, what's most important to you. It's what you treasure. It's what you treasure. I'm going to go back to that thought in just a moment, but let me kind of unpack this a little bit further as we work through this. So that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. It's more than agreement of facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart he dwells in your heart. The word dwell is an interesting word. It means to be at home as opposed to being a guest or an occasional visitor. So he said, I want Christ to dwell in your heart. He would be at home in your heart. He just wouldn't show up from time to time or you have a sense of his presence. You know, occasionally you show up to church, oh yeah, we need to think about God or, or you open up your Bible early in the morning but you don't ever talk about him or think about him from that point on. It, that would mean that he's not dwelling in your heart. One of the cross-references I put there on your notes is Revelations 3.20. you familiar with it? It was often used growing up. I grew up in the church, and so we often used it kind of for evangelism, but it's actually written to believers who are, have lost kind of this contact with, with Christ. They're not living with Christ dwelling in their heart. The verse goes like this. Maybe you're familiar with it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You guys familiar with that verse? Interesting. Who's, who's the... Who's the knocking? Who's doing the knocking? Says the door and knock, and if anyone, he's knocking at the door of our heart, and he's knocking, and then it says, if anyone hears his voice, it's interesting that he's knocking, but then it says, if he hears his voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And eating in this culture was very, very close, very intimate. It, it had to do with friendship and fellowship and communion. A personal intimate relationship is what he's talking about there. I'm knocking at your heart's door. I want to dwell in your heart. And so it's, it goes beyond just occasionally talking or thinking about him, but he dwells in our hearts. So let me ask you this. How is your personal intimate relationship with God? Oh, maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, then it wouldn't actually apply to you, but if you do call yourself a Christian, my question for you is how is your intimate personal relationship with God? Because that's the essence of the Christian life, is that Christ would dwell in your heart. Is Christ at home 
in your heart or an occasional guest or visitor? How often do you think about him? How often do you interact with him? See, and I, I believe this is, this is the sweet spot of the Christian life. When you begin to cultivate this, this habitual, conscious communion, conversation, communication with the creator of the universe. So how are you doing in that? You probably need some strength. Why would we need strength? Because there are so many things that are that are chasing after us and grappling for our attention and trying to get us off our game, so to speak, in the, in the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is the essence of what we need more than anything. This is the inner strength that will help you to face anything in your life. The reason why we have the inordinate anxiety, anger, depression in our lives is because we don't have this. We're not living in the reality of this. We've let something get a hold of our attention, our affection, our actions. So when Christ is dwelling in your heart, he dominates your thoughts, he stirs your deepest emotions, and then he moves you to action. You, you do what you do because you're doing it out of a heart filled up with who Jesus is and what he's done, and you've walked with him throughout the day. So you find yourself not reacting to the circumstances, the, the bad news, the things around you, but you're able to respond appropriately and put on display his glory. That's what he's praying for. So, so let me, let me uh, ask you a question here, make a statement, and this is very convicting. I noticed for me, and this is what's helped me to kind of get back into sync with this idea of Christ dwelling in my heart through faith, is that if you will pay attention, pay attention to where your thoughts effortlessly go when nothing else is demanding your attention, if you do that, you'll discover the true God of your heart. So let me say that again. Pay attention to where your thoughts effortlessly go when nothing else is demanding your attention and you'll discover the true God of your heart. That's really convicting. Some of you probably haven't even really thought much of that. But I'll guarantee you, if you begin to think more about that, think about what you're thinking about, you're going to begin to identify what is it that dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and moves you to action. And you've heard me share this many times before. I mean, mine is workaholism, so I'm thinking about performance and work, and how did I do, and what are those people thinking? And, you know, and I, I, this last week I got caught up in another one of those things where someone said something to me, and then I said something back, and then, then I walked away and did the brain debates for a couple hours. It's like, ah, I should have said this, and I should have done this, and da-da-da-da-da. And so what that was showing me is that part of my issue, one of my issues is people-pleasing. It's it's, it's called codependency, and so that was dominating rather than to turn that into an opportunity to prayer. And if there was something that I need to go back to the person and confess or apologize for, I would do that and work through that. And that's, that's really what should happen is that's going on in your life. So what is inner strength that Christ dwells in your heart through faith? Let me read to you a song that I grew up singing. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you grew up in the church, you probably sang this song. See if you can identify it. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always there. You guys know what the song is? Want to yell it out to me? He lives. Okay, yeah. He lives. It's the song that we typically always sing uh, Easter time. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how? I know he lives. He lives where? He lives within my heart. He lives within my heart. Does he live within your heart? That's the sweet spot of the Christian life. Just knowing him, walking with him, having relationship with him. Game over. Nothing better. Now, as you do that, this is what will happen. Here's the next 
Here's the next thing that will begin to take place. It's the next part of the prayer. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's kind of, it's an oxymoron. I mean, really, if you listen to it, to know something that you really can't know, okay? You can't know fully. I mean, this will blow your, your mind. This is way beyond your ability to fully wrap your mind around. In fact, all eternity, you're going to have opportunity to try to try to understand this, but you'll never fully understand it. God is infinite, He's eternal, and His love for us is the same. And so to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and He kind of helps us with this. By the way, the word know, it's an experience of His love. It's not just that you know God's love, you can tell people, oh yeah, Jesus loves me, but it's an experience of His love that you would know, you would experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And the verses that precede that, verses 17, as you work your way to 19, he kind of unpacks that for us because did you notice this? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and you being, what does he say? Rooted and grounded in his love. So he's kind of unpacking this for us, this idea of experiencing God's love. So let's, let's look at, first of all, the rooting. What does that mean? Being rooted in God's love. It's the idea is like a tree and, a, and the root system goes deep into the soil. How many have ever gone to Oak Creek Canyon? Oak Creek Canyon? Cool place. How many have never gone to Oak Creek Canyon here? Show of hands. Oh, wow. You, you've missed a really a beautiful, it's a beautiful ride. If you go through there and uh, the trees are lush and beautiful. How many would like to have a little cabin in Oak Creek Canyon, huh? Yeah, every hand there. Woo! I would like to have a place there. Those trees are unbelievably lush and beautiful. And there's places where you drive where the trees overarch the road. You kind of drive through the trees. Absolutely, that's the idea. The root system, you have a root system in Christ's love that nurtures, that nourishes you. That if he dwells in your heart and you're interacting with him, you have a sense of his love. And it draws up this... uh, nourishment that makes you strong. You just know if God is for you, He loves you. You can face anything. There's a satisfaction in that to where the things that maybe you struggled with early on in your Christian walk, you don't struggle as much. They're not as alluring. They don't draw you away because your appetite and your satisfaction in Him begins to exceed your appetite and you're being drawn away to these other things. Then he uses the word, not just be rooted, but he kind of mixes metaphors a little bit. He says, but be grounded or established. And the idea there is that of a foundation. And uh, any construction workers in the house? You guys work construction? Okay. You guys know how important is the foundation in a house? Not very important? Real important? Yeah. yeah in fact, I was when I worked construction, I, I worked... Uh, Worked at the Hyatt Regency. Have you ever been to the Hyatt Regency? And it was amazing how deep the foundation is. And the deeper the foundation, the higher they can build. The foundation, it was critical, you know, for the stability and the height at which you build a building. So, so the question is, you know, what, what is your life built on? What's the foundation of your life? There's something that you're looking to for, for nourishment and satisfaction. There's also something that you've built your life on. If it's anything other than Jesus Christ, it's, it's a matter of time that that building your life is going to be rattled and maybe even probably most likely come down. But you build your life, your foundation on his love, your life will be unshakable, unbreakable when the storms hit your life. That's what he's saying. That's that idea of his love. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then he goes on and he uses a word, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later on, because he talks about this, that you may uh, have the strength to comprehend. He's talking more intellectually, but he's talking about meditating, and he's talking about wrapping your mind around, and then he goes, the width, the length, the height, the depth. He's literally saying, your mind, your thoughts are saturated with the love of God because he dwells in your heart. That Christ dwells in your heart through faith to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So so the difference that he's talking about here, it's the difference between knowing God's love in your head and 
in your heart. It's the difference between those two. It's one thing to know that God loves you. It's another thing, you know, in your head, intellectually. It's intellectually coherent, but it's something altogether different when it drops down into your heart. It becomes existentially compelling. It moves you. It stirs you. It's what Jonathan Edwards said. He, he used this illustration. He said, it's the difference between knowing honey is sweet and having the sweetness on your tongue. So if you come to the newcomer's party tonight, you'll have sweetness on your tongue. You can chase it with some coffee. Woohoo! I'll be right there with you. I can't wait. We just won't talk about sweets. We're going to eat sweets and, and chase it with coffee. And so, so it's a difference. You know, you can talk about all these things. You can talk about God's love. But the, the question is, when was the last time? When was the last time that you had his love in your heart and it overwhelmed you? And you just knew. You just knew he loved you. You had a sense of it. You had a sense of it on your heart. And whatever you were facing, you were frightened before that point, but man, it just chased away the fears. In that moment, and then you had the courage, you had the, the strength. You could face that. Or maybe there was, a, there was something that, like I said earlier, you kind of struggled with. It's a temptation. You, you easily succumb to this temptation, and yet... And yet you spent some time with him and that thing didn't look as attractive anymore because you, you had him now. You wanted him more than anything. When was the last time you had that experience? See, this is an emotional wealth of being so saturated with the love of God that you are lost for words to describe it and nothing in the world can diminish it. So what is this inner strength that Christ dwells in your heart through faith to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And this is it. Remember, it's progressive, interrelated. Here's the next thing. To be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he says in verse 19. Basically, he's just saying this is the spirit-filled life. We're going to talk about it more in a few weeks down the road. We'll talk about it as we study Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. talks about the spirit-filled life. But you need to know this. Whether you're Christian or not, everyone here is filled with all the fullness of something. You are filled with all the fullness of something. There's something that dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and moves you to action. You do what you do because something fills your heart, fills your life. You're doing it for some reason. If it's not for God, it's going to be for something, probably yourself, but, but in, in regards to something else. So what he's saying here, to be filled with the fullness of God, what this means is that every aspect of your life is saturated with every aspect of God. So every aspect of God, we talked about the different aspects of God. We tend to swing to these extremes. You know, some churches out there, more liberal churches, would, you know, kind of look at God as he's very personal, he's loving, and they would emphasize that to the exclusion of the fact that, yeah, but he's also very powerful. And then you got more of the fundamentalist kind of churches that talk about almost like God's a tyrant God and, and they, they, they talk about his, that he, yeah, he's just and he's holy and he's righteous and they would say that to the exclusion of, it, of his love and his mercy and his grace. But you have to have the combination of both of those working in your life. Yes, God is both transcendent but he's eminent. Yes, he's, he's great but he's also very good. And what that does is in, it creates this balance within you that there's going to be certainly a humility but also a confidence but that humility, that humble confidence begins to invade and infiltrate every aspect of your life. In other words, Christ is not just, uh, you know, something that you add to your life to make your life better, or he's not a means to an end, but he literally infiltrates every dimension of your life. Your marriage, your parenting, your job, how you handle your finances, everything is gospel-centered and God-glorifying because your life is no, no longer about you, but it's about Him and Him alone. So you can see how these are progressive. If He's dwelling in your heart through faith, you're going to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you're going to be filled with all the fullness of God. And so, this is how you know that it's not just an emotional experience because it changes the way you live every area of your life. This is the Spirit-filled life. In other words, you begin to experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life in every dimension of your life. 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Spirit-filled life. So let me just give you a quick thought on that. Basically, the spirit-filled life is, uh, is this. When we study, we're going to get to it in the fifth chapter as I stated. And he says, do not be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Why would he relate the, the spirit-filled life with being drunk with wine? Because uh, people go to the bottle to get what we can get through the spirit-filled life. Uh, what, do, what do people go to the bottle to get? Usually to become courageous and to be happy. And that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. But what alcohol does is it, it decreases your senses to reality. It numbs reality. Where the Spirit increases your senses to reality, to the reality of Jesus that He is for you and not against you. And that's what gives you the courage and the and the joy. Does that make sense? So that's what he's talking about here. That you, you've got that, that, that heightened awareness of who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. So let me ask you this question. How would your life be different? Think about the circumstances. Maybe you're facing trials. What, just think about what are the specifics of those trials. Maybe it's a temptation that you just keep stumbling over. You keep doing it. Maybe it's you overshop or overwork or you just you, you're too preoccupied with what people think about you or, or we live in a day and time right now I just read an article that it's saying that we're, we're losing a whole generation of young men uh, to pornography and video games so maybe it's one of those things what is it that you're struggling with? Or maybe you have been traumatized through life. You've, you've been raised in an environment that was very abusive. What is it that you need to overcome? How would your life be different in one of those areas if you really believe that the creator of the universe loved you so much, he gave his life for you, and he promised you he would never leave you or forsake you? Here's, here's what would happen, I believe, that if you really begin to believe that, if you really believe what you believe was really real, remember the Truth Project, what, what the guy said there, Del Tackett, talks about that. If you really believe what you believe was really real, I mean, it would make all the difference in, in, in the world, in your life, but this is what it would do. If you struggle with porn or video games or whatever, I mean, certainly the very first thing that you would want to do is you would want to put a guard on your computer or get rid of your computer, and that would be, that would be just good wisdom. Otherwise, you probably don't really want to get rid of that. You might think that you do, but, but until you begin to make some, take some action to say, hey, I'm going to put a guard on this. I'm going to have somebody hold me accountable. That would be the first thing that you'd want to do. But you've got to go way beyond that and that you've got to begin to develop an appetite and an affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and find satisfaction in Him that it would begin to exceed your appetite and affection for porn or video games or whatever it is that's drawing your heart away from Him. You've got to begin to stir that up within you. You've got to begin to surround yourself in an environment that would stir that up within you because your ability to get through those difficulties is directly related to how much of an affection and love and how much you are living in the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done for you and how captivated your heart is to that. And uh, that's what he's praying for. That's the fullness of life. So why is it important? Let's go to the next one now. So that's what is the inner strength. Christ dwells in your heart by faith to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge to be filled with all the fullness of God. So why is this important? And we need to kind of find some theological balance in this because don't flash the answer up there yet, just yet. Let me see if they know what the answer is to the first one. Heart experience without biblical truth is, see if the person next to you, some of you try to guess these anyway, but go ahead and see if you know what the answer is real quick. What do you guys think that answer is? How many know the answer? Okay, you know the answer? What is the answer? Yell it out to me. Emotionalism, where'd you get that? There's an app for that. <laughs> yeah. You're very smart. I was thinking, man, these guys are really brilliant. They just have an app. All the answers, yeah, all the answers are right there on the app. Okay. Oh, that's right. You guys have apps. You guys, how many are using the app that we have that you can, okay, cool, right on. So you guys didn't want to show off over here, did you? Like these. Oh, yeah, I know that answer. Woohoo. 
How'd you know that? I just know that. Because I'm smart. You didn't do that, though. That's what I would do. I have all the answers right here on my little computer. Okay, so hard experience without biblical truth is Mormonism. No, actually, it's emotionalism, but that is true. Mormonism. Because if you, if, and I've had a lot of Mormon friends, and this is what they would do. You need to read the Book of Mormon, and then at the end of the Book of Mormon, you ask God to give you a burning in the bosom. I've had a burning in the bosom a lot, but it wasn't because it was validating their book, okay? I won't even go there. But uh, that's frightening. I shouldn't even have said that. But, uh, but, but what are they doing? They're trying to build uh, reliability on subjectivity. They're trying to say, we know it's true because I had a burning in my gut. What? You're goofy. That's crazy. Nobody does that. Well, we, we shouldn't. But you don't have to try to figure out whether the, you know, by praying and asking God to reveal that. It's actually, historically, the reason why we study this book, the Bible, and there's no other books that would be added to that, as the Mormons say there are, Doctrine of Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon, is because they're not reliable. They're not inspired of God. And you just look historically, evidentially, factually at those things and they they invalidate themselves if you if you think so that's the danger here is that hard experience without biblical truth is emotionalism it says in jeremiah 17 9 it says the heart is what deceitfully wicked i just do what my heart tells me well you're in big trouble aren't you based on what the bible says you don't go by your heart you go by god's word and if it aligns up with with you know, your heart happens to line up with it. Praise God. That's great. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 14.12, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man that leads to what? Destruction. So you can actually think that you're on the right path, but ultimately you're dead. You're screwed. That would be a harsher word, but that's the reality that we need to understand. You think, just because it's all based on fear, well, what I think and I feel, and oh, I've had so much peace. I had a guy that got involved in a false religion and said, I've never had more peace. So does that validate it? No. It doesn't validate that false religion. Yeah, but you should have saw the miracles. That doesn't validate that false religion. So it's important to really understand that. Hard experience without biblical truth is emotionalism. I was raised in a Pentecostal and kind of charismatic background. And some of those environments were so preoccupied with the gifts to the exclusion of the gift giver. They weren't seeking the gift giver. They were seeking the gifts. And it got weird. I believe in the gifts, but the gifts are a byproduct of seeking the giver of those gifts and allowing him to use you in that to make an impact in people's lives so that they can see Jesus more clearly. Another thing, too, is that I, I had somebody who was in this church. They don't attend here anymore, but they said, hey, you got to check this guy out. He's online. He's on, on the web. And listen to his teachings. Man, they're unbelievable. And so I went to, to listen to this guy, and I go, oh, this guy's a quack. And I didn't quite say that to them. I just said, uh, I explained it to him. I said, this guy's more into the experience than he is in the experience giver. Jesus. He's not making much of Jesus. He's making much of the experience. I said, that's jacked up. That's messed up. That's where you get into all kinds of weird stuff. And so, feelings are part of our life. We want to be feeling people. Spurgeon put it this way. Charles Spurgeon says, there is nothing so deluding as feelings. Christians cannot live by feelings. What right have you to set up your feelings against the Word of God? Charles Spurgeon, that's what he said. Next point, biblical truth without hard experience is what? What do you guys think it is? Intellectualism. What'd you say? Oh, legalism? Yeah, it actually is. It would be a form of legalism. Good answer. In fact, Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, these people worship me with their lips, but they're what? Their hearts are far from me. Second Timothy, let me read through a couple things and listen to this. So Second Timothy 3, 5 and also, seven, it says this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its 
power. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So you can look like a Christian, act like a Christian, and not be a Christian. You can know a lot about the Bible and not be a Christian. That's what he's saying. I could give you a map of New York City and you could study it, Manhattan Lower and Upper Manhattan, even have pictures of New York City and think that you know New York City and never have ever gone to New York City. You've never shopped in the shops or rode in the subway or you've never experienced New York City. That's what he's saying. You can talk about God. You can know a lot about God. You can know a lot about godliness and not know God. It's all just kind of religious, going through the motions, intellectualism, legalism. So here's a question. Well, let me give you another verse. First Corinthians 8.1. It says that knowledge puffs up, but love does what? Anybody know the verse? Love builds up. So here's, here's the deal. You can grow in all kinds of knowledge of God and, and recite all kinds of verses and things like that. And if you're just becoming more proud and arrogant and self-righteous, you've missed the point of the Bible. Because if you're really truly encountering the God of the Bible, you're going to be more loving. You're going to have an appetite for God that will just exceed all appetites. And you'll have a love that will overflow that into other people's lives. And people will notice it. And they'll say, whoa, what's going on? That's, that's what he's saying. That's why he says knowledge puffs up, love builds up. He's not saying get rid of knowledge. He's just saying this knowledge should be, should be taking you to God. You should know him and to experience him. So let me ask you this question. What do you do when you have those dry times? Anybody here ever have those dry times? Oh my goodness, I have them more often than what you would probably want to know. There's times I get up here and I, I'm going through dry times. Then I'm kind of between those, those waves of his grace and the experience of his love. So what do you do during those times? That was the question that was asked in our small group this, this last week. Great question. The guy was just saying, what do you do during those uh, dry times? And uh, here's what C.S. Lewis uh, says. He says, faith is the art of holding on to the things your reason once accepted in spite of your changing moods. So, you, so this is what I do with my dry times. I already know this is reliable. I've done the research. I've studied. I know it's historical, evidential, and factual. I've had an encounter with Jesus, and man, those have been sweet times. But right now, I'm in between times. But man, I look back to the past of those times, but I also look ahead and seek Him with all of my heart so I can have more of those times so that I can experience more of Him and live out of that. Here's the last one. Biblical truth with heart experience is life to its fullest Jesus with the woman at the well, John chapter 4, she was discussing this whole idea of worship. And Jesus says, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's really the idea of, of experience, hard experience based on biblical truth. And, and here's the deal. Don't tell me you've encountered the living Lord and Savior, and that Christ dwells in your heart by faith. And you remain the same. Your life is relatively not much different than, than what it was before you encountered Him. You cannot meet the Creator of the universe and remain the same. If you walk in vital union with Him, He will change your life. So the issue with your issues is not your issues. It's are you walking in vital union with him because that's how it's going to begin to bring change. You got an area of your life you're wanting to change? It's not your externals. It's your internals. You cultivate this internal relationship with God where his love saturates your life. It will make a major difference in your life. You will no longer be suited for a normal life the more you get to know him and walk with him and experience him. Good Bible study I mean, we're into Bible study here. You, you see how we work through the texts. It's really important. I would encourage you to do the same on your own, but also in the smaller Bible study groups. We're studying through Genesis right now in one of the Bible study groups that I'm a part of. But good Bible study will stir the emotions and move you to action, but not by bypassing the mind. Nothing can be in the heart that is not first in the mind. Your heart can't be inflamed with God if you don't know Him. 
So unless you know God deeply, you can't be loved by him or have love for him deeply. Here's what's amazing what Paul's talking about here, and I believe this, is that Christ's love, Christ's approval, Christ's acceptance, Christ's affection for you can exceed the love and approval and affection of any human being, of any close family member. He becomes so vivid, so real to you, that you're, you're less devastated by the, by the criticism of the world. I mean, you could be against the whole world, but if you have His love, if you know Him, like Paul is praying for, you can deal with it. You can face that and do it in such a way that you can put Him on display. And people would be attracted to Him through your life because they'd be blown away at how you can manage life and deal with life because of His grace in your life. How many remember, um, I'm old enough that uh, I remember when we got our first color TV, but we had black and white for many years, and, and when we'd have one black and white TV just go, we did like a lot of families did, you just go and find another one and put it on top of that one. Anybody remember that? Remember those days? You're old enough? And then we didn't have remote control. What was remote control? It was the kids, yeah. Kids, yeah, we'd land there, you know, we'd be out there watching TV. My dad said, hey, would you, one of you kids go up there and flip the stations. Let's see which on. Remember how hard that was? Oh, let's, okay. And then, uh, and so we would do that. And, and here's the deal with this, this idea that, uh, that he's praying for, is that Christ goes from being on AM radio to HDTV. I mean, now we have HDTV. It almost feels like you're right there, right in the room. I mean, when the first time I, I started looking at HD, how many have HDTV? Can I come over to your house and watch the games? I've got one too, so I guess I don't have to do that. But, but anyway, I mean, it's just like, wow, it's so vivid. And that's what Christ becomes. He's no longer just this faint voice in the background, you know, it's kind of fuzzy AM radio trying to get to station. But man, HDTV, he is with you. Never to leave you or forsake you. He dwells in your heart. You are saturated with his love. You are filled to the fullness of God. It's amazing. Totally amazing. And uh, let me share with you just three quick, and then we're going to, now I'm going to walk you through this last part. Three quick examples. I'm going to walk you through the last part, and then we're going to take communion this morning, which is a wonderful opportunity. This is from, uh, this is my journal. Um, it's big. But uh, this is a study that I did a number of years ago, and there's four different uh, examples. D Dwight L. Moody, American evangelical minister, 19th century. Uh, he had, they had a bad fire in Chicago. He was a pastor in Chicago, and he was really depressed. And he went to New York City, and he had been praying for, for more of God, and he was walking along the streets of New York City in the late 1850s, and he said, suddenly God came down in a way I've never forgotten. I started experiencing so much love being poured into my heart. I had to ask him. I had to ask him to stop. George Whitfield, um, British Anglican priest, he often found while praying at night, he started experiencing God's love poured into his heart in such great amounts that he couldn't get to sleep. And so he would say, please stop. I've got to get some sleep. Blaise Pascal, 16th century French philosopher, when he died, they found sewed in the lining of his coat a diary entry, an experience that happened for two hours from midnight to 2 a.m. one night in 1654 in which he experienced the love of God as a fire and he never again doubted the reality of a God or his own assurance of his salvation. He described it in, in powerful words and sewed it into the lining of his coat because he wanted it to always be near to his heart and it changed it changed his life forever here's my last one is Teresa of Avila a Roman Catholic nun 16th century the consolation sweetness and delight were incomparably greater this prayer was a glorious foolishness a heavenly madness I was bewildered and inebriated in his love. My soul desired to cry out, 
and it was beside itself. It could not bear so much joy. Now, what's interesting about each of these, same spiritual experience of Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, and here you have different cultures, genders, generations, and temperaments. So what, what I'm, the point that we're making here is that it doesn't matter. It's for everybody. You must seek it. So how do we do it? How do you get it? Prayerful seeking. Next fill in the blank. Prayerful seeking. You notice in verse 14, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. This is a passionate prayer because when most people prayed in this culture, they prayed standing. And so he's passionate. He gets on his knees. When was the last time you got on your knees before God on the side of your bed and you poured your heart out to him? A sure sign that you have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ is to want more of him more than anything else. He is your most satisfying reality. And in fact, a recognition of his absence is a sign of his presence. If you're here today and you're saying, I want this, I want this, Jesus is near. He's drawing you in. He loves you because you can't want it unless he's working in your life. To long for this is in a way to experience his presence And then the next one is aggressive wrestling. I'm going to spend just a moment longer on this one. Verse 18, he says that you may have, you may have strength to comprehend. The word comprehend means to seize upon or to take possession of. It has the idea of wrestling someone to the ground. When this same word is used in a corporate sense, it means to sack and plunder a city taking its wealth. So, So the idea here is it means to wrestle not with God, but with the truths about God down deep into your heart. It's, it's really meditation, taking a thought and trying to drive it deep into your heart, reflecting on it over and over again. There's a quote here I want to read. This is from uh, the book Mending the Soul, Steve Tracy, who wrote the book. I actually got this from their uh, ministry update letter that was sent out to Twitter here recently. Uh, Dagny Mallory and her husband, uh, Sean, uh, she works for them as part of their staff. But it was, I, just, I found this really, really great what they said at the very front end of that ministry letter. Listen, listen to what, uh, what they said in their ministry letter. They said, ministry to the abused is challenging as those broken in severe ways typically have, have thick self-protective layers around their hearts that are very hard to penetrate trust in health are built very slowly when all someone has known their whole life is Satan's lies. That's powerful. These challenges are what make God's redemptive healing so supernatural and beautiful. Some of you are right there. You've taken a beating and there's a hardness around your heart. And that's the reason why you can sit out there and say, I have no idea what he's talking about as far as experiencing God. And my heart breaks for you. And all I'm going to say is that it's going to take some time. It takes this, this is what Paul, this word that he's using here, that it takes this, this aggressive wrestling. And in fact, we, see, we have verses, uh, Psalm 42, 5. Psalmist is not experiencing God. He's saying, you know, it's the song, song where it starts off by saying, my, uh, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Well, why is he saying that? Because he's not experiencing. He doesn't have the experience. He knows it objectively. He doesn't know it subjectively. He's saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's wrestling. So here's how you do it. This is how I do it. Um, and I'm, I, it, usually it's my wife that has to bring this to my attention or I, I hear myself and I'm, I'm angry, I'm anxious or there's something going on and my wife says, wow, are you okay? And it's like, yes, I'm okay. And uh, she goes, I don't think so. And then so what I finally go, I guess I'm not okay. There's something going on. And so what I have to do is I have to, I have to start asking, why are you so downcast? Why am I so anxious? So I have to kind of get in touch with what, what's going on. Why are you so anxious? Why are you so angry? Why are you so depressed? 
Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in Him. And that's what He's saying. He's crying out. And so I'll, what I do, and so that gives me opportunity. As I get in touch with that, then it's opportunity to, to begin to take His truth and His love and begin to apply it specifically to where my heart is most restless. It takes time. Sometimes it takes days. Sometimes it could take months. Sometimes it could take years for us to get that down. But it's well worth the wrestle. Every bit of it. And so there's this aggressive wrestling that's going on. Psalm 103 is the same. So the public battles in life are first won in private communion with your Savior, wrestling the assurance of His perfect love deep into your heart. And then here's the last two. Community living, Christ exalting. Community living. We had uh, something happen in our small group this last week. It was just, it was wonderful. Uh, when, when Bonnie, when Bonnie, she starts talking about how she was stressed out and then she went to Ephesians because we're sitting there and the Lord spoke to her so clearly from Ephesians 6. And she says almost immediately she has this encounter with Christ and then she was able to turn and respond to the circumstances in a way that it maybe had, she had never been able to respond quite like that. She had a peace and a calmness and an empowerment that came as a result of her just taking out time, spending time with God, opening up God's work. God, in, she encountered God, made all the difference. And when she shared that, it was encouraging to me. I was like, she was in the, in the first service. So I said, yeah, Bonnie, that's so cool. And it's always so cool to hear the people in our small group uh, just bring that encouragement. There are things about God that you're not going to be able to learn on your own, but it's only going to be in a small group context like that. Next one is Christ exalting. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about seeing and beholding his beauty and his glory. It changes everything about us. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to be passing the trays out here in just a moment. Those of you that will be passing those trays, you can make your way to the back and prepare to pass those out. This is for believers. This is a very sacred and very ancient practice that we hold dear to us. If you're not a believer, just let the, the, the tray pass by. You can become a believer this morning by acknowledging your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and, and giving your life to Him and living your life for Him. And if you do that by prayer through faith, then feel free to take communion and hang on to the elements. We'll take them together at the end. I'm going to walk us through this idea of the width, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. God, thank you so much for your word this morning to us. Wow, what an amazing prayer. What an amazing things that you are doing in our lives. We love you, and we want to know more, more your love deep within our heart. We pray that that would happen right now as we take communion, as we are reminded of, of what you have done for us through your death, burial, and resurrection to kind of seal the deal once and for all, that you love us with an everlasting love, that if you are for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Help us to, to know that and experience that in our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. I think Paul is giving us an opportunity to kind of peer into his own journal as he's grappling with the issues, as he's praying for the church in Ephesus. Great prayer for us also when he says that you may grasp or comprehend the width, the length, the depth, and the height of his love. I want us to do that just to take a few moments and do that. What is this idea of the, the breadth of God's love, that it's wide enough I believe what he's saying, it's wide enough to include everybody. Isaiah 1, 18, it says, Though your sins are scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Scarlet means red, blood red, in the sense that even if you've killed somebody, he can forgive you. What are you struggling over to, to get rid of the guilt and the shame? He died to remove that from you. He can set you free. If you ever give up on yourself or anyone else, it's because you don't know the breadth of his love. And then he says the length of his love, long enough to last forever. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from his love. And then the depth of his love, how deep is it? Deep enough to die for you. On the cross, he cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He was forsaken so that you never will be. The height of his love, height of his love giving us an untouchable identity as high as the heavens. For you know how great this love is, how much love he's lavished upon us that we should be called his children. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That's what his word says as we wrestle those things deep into our heart. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this represents my broken body for you. Eat and do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. That same night he took the cup and he said, this represents the new covenant and represents my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me? I'd like to conclude by reading the last part of this prayer. The last part of this prayer is doxology. It's the natural response when you've had an encounter with God and you begin to understand the first part of that prayer is that you just want to celebrate God. You want to worship Him, and this is how it goes. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever ever in the name of Jesus Christ we pray and everyone said amen God bless you